gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you need to listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're going to be talking about B2B marketing lessons from Game of Thrones with our special guest, Chief Marketing Officer at Data Dog. Alex, how are you? Doing well, thanks. Excited to have you on the show. Excited to chat Game of Thrones. Excited to chat Datadog. So why did you pick Game of Thrones to talk about today? I mean, I think from a B2B marketing, especially content marketing perspective, I mean, the show just has tons of, of lessons, both in the production of the actual show and, of course, the books also, and then in the storyline itself. And and, you know, one of the things that I think is really great is also the, the construct of, of the world of, of Game of Thrones and that there are certain precepts and things that exist. And, I mean, you're sucked into the world. And I think especially from a marketing perspective, that's kind of what we're all trying to do. We, we build a world around our product and what the ideal state is using the product or the service. And, and you're trying to bring people into that. And, you know, an ad or some other kind of lead generation activity. You're trying to bring people into that. And, and I think that it, it's a pretty good analogy to an extremely well-executed version of that in the book and TV series of Game of Thrones. And so zooming out, tell us a little bit about what it means to be CMO of Datadog. Yeah. So Datadog is a company that was founded to initially to solve performance problems for engineers that were using newer technologies like the cloud. And if you were to go back to the founding of the company, there was a lot of things that were going on. For starters, monitoring tools in the past had just been abysmal to use. The UIs were bad. They were. It took a lot of training. It was not uncommon to have to fly people out to become power users at the headquarters of the company, and you had to sit through four to five days of like nonstop training. At the end of the day, people were generally not using the monitoring tools that they had bought. And if you're not using this thing that's trying to help you out, it essentially it doesn't exist. So from the beginning, Datadog was a solution that was meant to be extremely easy to use, should spread through the engineering team like wildfire, and people would want to use it. And changing the mindset around making a monitoring solution that people were actually excited to use was, was a big paradigm shift. And you know, since then, we've been on a tear. The solution is used by... 20-some thousand, maybe more customers right now. I, I don't have the official customer count yet from our uh, most recent earnings call. But, I mean, we're just, it's very easy to get set up. It's very easy for someone to say, hey, that looks really interesting. Can you set me up on that? You literally just put their name in there, and they start using it. 
And what has happened in the past couple of years of the company is the same UI constructs, the same product philosophy of just making this thing easy to use so everybody can use it is applicable to a lot of adjacent areas. So since then, we've expanded into security. We've expanded into developer tooling. We have expanded into digital experience monitoring, a lot of these other categories. And the nice thing about the product is that even though we now have more than 20 different products to offer, because engineers do so many different things, whenever someone's using the product, they have no idea where one specific product begins and another product ends. It's a continuum of different data types and different capabilities that they're able to bring to bear to get their job done really easily so that they can focus on what their actual job is, being a developer, being a site reliability engineer, being an infosec engineer. The setting up and maintaining the tooling to help you out with that shouldn't be something that you're working on. And we're going to get more into content and marketing for Datadog later on in the episode. But first, Meredith, what the heck is Game of Thrones? So Game of Thrones is this massively successful epic fantasy series with a really impassioned following. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. If I had to wrap it up, it's basically about a civil war among noble families who are fighting for control over the Iron Throne that rules the lands of Westeros, which I would kind of describe as this medieval land. Meanwhile, an ancient enemy known as the Night King returns after being dormant for thousands of years. There are three major plot lines to follow. The first is about the fight for the Iron Throne among the families. The second is about the rightful heir coming back to claim the throne. And the third is about the incoming winter. And that's because in Game of Thrones, seasons don't have sort of a worldly timeline The summer has been basically like 10 years, and they know that winter is coming. I know this is hard for you, but winter is coming. We know what's coming with it. We can't face it alone. But the idea of winter basically implies hard times and a threat from the north, which is where the wildlings live, and they live behind this magic wall that kind of keeps them at bay, um, and that's where the Night King is as well. So it's based on a book series called A Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. R. Martin, which was published in 1996. And so that was really the inspiration behind the show, because the creators, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, were big fans of the books. And so they created the show for HBO. So the show has a massive ensemble cast, something like 566 characters. But to name a few, the show stars Amelia Clark as, as Daenerys Targaryen, Peter Dinklage as Tyrion Lannister, Kit Harington as Jon Snow, Maisie Williams as Arya Stark. And so the show has a massive ensemble cast with something like 566 characters. But to name a few, the show stars Amelia Clark as Daenerys Targaryen, Peter Dinklage as Tyrion Lannister, Kit Harington as Jon Snow, Maisie Williams as Arya Stark, and much, much more. The show premiered in 2011 with eight seasons and wrapped up in 2019. And that year, it was HBO's most watched show and the most watched scripted show on TV, period. The show had a total budget of $1.5 billion and has earned somewhere around $3.1 billion through HBO subscriptions alone. And that was only as of May 2019. Yes. So obviously, 
there's a million things to discuss with Game of Thrones, the TV show. We could go in a million different directions for this. But specifically, there's a few elements within Game of Thrones that you really like, Alex. What makes Game of Thrones remarkable to you? I mean, I think one of the things is you watch it and it is like seared, I mean, tattooed into your brain. The experience of watching it is, is not something that you're going to forget. It, it's, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's almost an emotional thing because they do such a good job of introducing these characters and making them real and you understand their motivations. And even when they do horrible things, it makes sense. I mean, this is what they were for. These were the hand of cards they were dealt and they're going to play their cards as best they can to advance their own goals, whether it's literally just surviving or trying to take over the known world. If we don't put aside our enmities and band together, we will die. And then it doesn't matter whose skeleton sits on the Iron Throne. It just hits so many high notes from, you know, cinematography to character development to, you know, the plot to just even the structure of the storytelling. I mean, every, every episode leaves on a cliffhanger Things that are completely unexpected happen. The main characters get killed off and sometimes really early on and you're like, oh my God, what is going on? My mother wishes me to let Lord Eddard join the Night's Watch. Stripped of all titles and powers, he would serve the realm in permanent exile. And my lady Sansa has begged mercy for her father. But they have the soft hearts of women. So long as I am your king, treason shall never go unpunished. Sir Illyn, bring me his head. And I mean, after you see it, like that, that'll be one of the last things that ever falls out of your brain. I think one of the things for me, from a marketing perspective with this show, is that it is such a sprawling epic and there's so many characters and you don't know who matters and who doesn't, especially when they start killing off characters. And you don't know who's going to be there from the end. But the, at the end of the show, what they promised is that someone will be king. And so you know the entire series that like there is a point to all of this. Like someone is going to rule the Iron Throne. I shouldn't say should be king. Someone is going to rule the Iron Throne. And you don't know who it's going to be. And you also know that winter is coming. And obviously we could do an entire episode just on season eight and how they sort of screwed all of that up. But at the end of the day, like the show did deliver on that promise and you knew that you were watching for a reason. And I think that all of the like little detours and crazy places that they went and character team ups and, and like betrayals and all of that stuff, you just loved sitting in the story and we could have watched 20 more seasons of the show because we just wanted to hang out with the characters. And like, we knew the end was coming, but we didn't really feel the need for the end to be coming. And I think like, there's no higher praise for a show than that. Than like, you just want to hang out with them. And like, thank goodness we have seven amazing seasons, seven and a half amazing seasons of, uh, of show that we can go back and hang out with them whenever we want. It's the people. It's also the place. I mean, yeah. those worlds are just brought to life. They've got different rules than, than you know, the, the world that we interact with. It's, it's, it's similar, but it's not exactly it. There's, there's, there's things that are a little bit off. And, I mean, some of the places are horrible. 
But I mean, they're so guttural. Like, who owns the North? Yeah. Who owns the North? Yeah. Show me. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to look at a, or it's it's not nice, but rather interesting to look at like a picture of a desolate place or outer space. I mean, it's it's engaging. It's different. And and I think that like a lot of the worlds that they brought up were brought into being were similar. One of the things that we talked about from a marketing perspective, what in our prep call for this, was the idea of like brands and like how good the brands are in the kingdom. Like the Lannisters, they have their brand, they have their slogan, you know, like the Starks, they have their brand, they have their slogan. Like these houses are so well branded from a marketing nerdy perspective. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. <laughs> the Iron Bank, all these other, the Free Cities, the Golden Company, all of these people have such strong reputations. And George R. R. Martin, the writer, is like the best maybe ever to do this, of like making everything feel so real that it just, everything is like earned. And then people like live up to that brand promise all the time. Like a Lannister always pays his debts. Like it always happens. They live that stuff. Uh, and I think that, that that part is just, it 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 makes you feel like you're part of the story because you know that these people are not going to betray that part of themselves. And then when they do betray that, it's like an even, even bigger betrayal. And I just love how all of the different people and cultures and communities all have these different these different moments about them, the Kingsguard and all this stuff. It's just so freaking cool. Yeah. I mean, and, and if you think about it from a, a marketing viewpoint, I mean, there's so many times that stories are told of episodes or individuals that keep on reinforcing that branding. I mean, it just comes up like an offhand conversation, which is which is a really good way to do it. It's not like it's not like, let me tell you the story. It's like, oh yeah, just like the time that blah 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 happened. Like, you know, that it's just like that again. And there's all these well-known episodes that people bring up kind of in passing that keep on reinforcing the brand promise of the, you know, the specific city or the, the specific family. He'll be offering a handsome reward. Everyone knows a Lannister always pays his debts. You know, something that's also really neat is the past performance that sometimes gets appended to people's titles, like especially Daenerys Targaryen, like every city, every every episode that she oversees gets appended to her title. So I think it starts out with she's like Stormborn because she was born in Storm or something. And then she's, you know, Stormborn Mother of Dragons, Stormborn Mother of Dragons for your slaves, Stormborn Mother of Dragons for your slaves, you know, ruler of blah, blah, blah. And I mean, by by the last season, I mean, it takes like two minutes to recite her her entrance anywhere because she's got this huge past performance. You stand in the presence of Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, rightful heir to the Iron Throne, rightful queen of the Andals and the First Men, protector of the Seven Kingdoms, the mother of dragons, the Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, the unburnt, the breaker of chains. I mean, every single one of those is like literally the title of a case study that, you know, goes back to like this person is not someone to be trifled with, and you're better off bending the knee than trying to take her on the bow. Another one is Jamie Lannister, possibly one of the greatest 
characters, you know, ever written in fiction. The, you know, the opening scene, he's obviously doing multiple terrible things at once, but he pushes a child out of, out of a window while he's, you know, being adulterous with his sister. The things I do for love. You couldn't possibly hate a person more in any story in the first episode. And then by halfway through the series, you're like, I think I love this guy. Like, he's the best. He's so awesome. And I think one of the things, like a great sort of marketing lesson from this is he made an oath. He was sworn to to protect the king and he killed the king. And that follows him forever. And he has a story of why. He's like, well, the king was going to kill everyone. So I did the right thing. And he never tells anyone that except for, you know, Brienne. And, you know, it's this amazing moment that they share together. But also, nobody cares that that was the case. Because his job was to protect the king and he broke the oath. She is a truer knight than you will ever be. Kingslayer. Kingslayer. What a king he was. Here's to Ares Targaryen. The second of his name, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, protector of the realm, and to the sword I shoved in his back. You are a man without honor. And I and I always feel like that, you know, when we get ahead of our skis in marketing, where if you say you're gonna do something in your marketing, you better be damn sure that sales can deliver on that that your product can deliver on it and that customer success is going to be there if if you fall short of that. Because so often we get out way over our skis, we're, we're pitching a product that doesn't exist yet and that's that's going to make people way madder than if you just didn't promise it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, not only that, you can't hide these days. I mean, a screenshot of something that you know broke a promise ends up on Twitter, ends up on Reddit, you know, goes halfway around the world before you even, you know, someone messages you and says, hey, that email you sent it, you know, that's, that's being, you know, like retweeted like crazy. So yeah, I mean, the world, I think, has become a very small place, which is actually another interesting thing about Game of Thrones. Even though it's a big world with a lot of people, still feels like a pretty small place. Never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not. Wear it like armor. And it can never be used to hurt you. You kind of know where all the geography is. You know who people are. You know, also in off in passing, people will will figure out. Oh yeah, you're the brother of that guy's sister of this and that. And like that's how you know. I know you. Like there's a fair amount of like that that kind of background knowledge where people immediately are able to place each other, even if they're from like really far away. Another thing that that you, you think you think Braun is the epitome of growth marketing. Why is that? Yes, I love Braun. He's such He's a good great. character. Uh, for for those who have not seen the show. Braun is like just a quintessential mercenary. He'll only do things for money, but he's tactical, which is where I think the growth marketing piece comes in. He knows he's pretty good at fighting, but he also knows his limits. And he's offered a fair amount of money, I think, in a couple of scenes to do something. He's like, I'm not doing it. Like, I, I don't have the capabilities to be successful here. Does he frighten you so much? I'd be a bloody fool if he didn't frighten me. He's freakish big and freakish strong. And quicker than you'd expect for a man of that size. Maybe I could take him. Dance around until he's so tired of hacking at me, he dropped his sword. Get him off his feet somehow. But one misstep, and I'm dead. Why should I risk it? 
Because you're my friend. Aye, I'm your friend. And when have you ever risked your life for me? And, you know, he knows where, you know, going back to what we were talking about, about not getting over your skis. He knows exactly where the limits are. He's also got like an end plan that he's working towards. Like he wants to kind of retire and have a quiet little life. And as he starts to gain success and starts to earn a lot of money because he's doing all these mercenary things, those plans get a little bit grander. But I mean, I think that he also, one of, I think the best lines in all of Game of Thrones is, you know, at some point he's offered money and he's like, I want money and I want to be given a title. And, you know, I think it's Tyrion who's like, you're just this kind of like gutter rat that is happens to be good with a sword. Like, you're not going to be nobility. Like, you're not going to fool anybody. High God will never belong to a cutthroat. No? Who were your ancestors? The ones who made your family rich? Fancy lads in silk? They were fucking cutthroats. That's how all the great houses started, isn't it? With a hard bastard who was good at killing people. Kill a few hundred people, they make you a lord. Kill a few thousand, they make you king. And then, all your cocksucking grandsons can ruin the family with their cocksucking ways. And he, he has, like, a, a bit of a monologue where he says, like, hey, look, your maybe, like, great-great-grandfather was just like me. And when you kill enough people and you get enough money and you're able to take over, like, a parcel of land and he starts to be successful, all of a sudden all that stuff gets, you know, kind of paved over and a couple generations later, later, there's a bunch of like really prissy, spoiled offspring of the lord of or the king or the you know whoever, and like they completely lost the the lineage back to the fact that like there were some real barbarians that established this estate in the first place. And he's kind of like, I'm going to be the barbarian to establish my estate. And you know, I that it's yeah. I mean, he knows the world. He knows his limits. He only operates within his limits, and he's probably the only character that ends up far better without any real scars or any real, like, fell in a pit in the whole series, because he's the only person that never oversteps what he's capable of and knows where he's going. Yeah, lots of people progress, but at a cost, and he does not. He just, he ends up the series way better off, way, way underqualified for the role that he's in in the very end. Peter Principal in full effect for for our guy Braun. A very capable fellow, but but I think he's like like master of ships or master of coin or something or I forget what he is in the very end. But he's definitely definitely the big come up there for our guy Braun. Yeah. I mean I think being good at growth marketing is being scrappy, trying things out, not being afraid to like, you know, if something is maybe a little bit hacky, but hey, it works. Like, leaning into it. Again, never overstepping your bounds and understanding that, you know, the world works a certain way and leaning into it. And, you know, he's, he knows the world is kind of, their world is a real grimy place. And, you know, he operates within those constraints. And I think that that a fair amount of demand gen stuff, like, you know, sometimes you you, you set up ads, you know, that, that are kind of gimmicky and you're like, oh man, like, I, you know, it'd be nice to do something a little bit more cerebral, but hey, you know, people people like the jingle or, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, I, I think that there's a fair amount of pragmatism that if, if you stick to that and, and you don't have this big ideology or this big grand picture that you're trying to fill the pieces on, you just keep on stringing together successes of what works, even if they're very moderate and small scale, you, you end up, you know, everything is a stepwise function and you build your way up sometimes pretty, pretty high, just like Braun does in the show. If there's anything I can do to make your stay at King's Landing... Well, what are you, his hired killer? Started that way, I. Now I'm a knight, 
How did that come to pass? Killed the right people, I suppose. Another uh, marketing takeaway that we talked about essentially boils down to if you got dragons, you better use them. Don't, don't chain them up. They missed their mother. And why do you think that that's a, that's a big marketing takeaway for people with, who do have dragons? Yeah, so, I mean, starting a company, making a company really successful, it's super hard. You know, you have to keep on, if you're a startup, you have to keep on trying to get more funding. And, you know, if you, have, if, if you haven't done as well in the past round of funding, the terms are going to be more onerous. You've got competitors. You're trying to break in. No one knows who you are. You've got all these things stacked against you. So if you have any kind of secret weapon, like you better use it. And you're going to probably want to use it pretty early on. Like you're not going to want to sit on it. You know, you, you happen to go to school with like a bunch of people that are connected, call them up, get, you know, try, try to, try to work those connections. You've got some really weird talent, like use that too. Like, you know, I, I think it, you know, you might get people to show up to like a field event if the CEO is going to play the clarinet, you know, like whatever it is, I think that you need to, to bring that to bear. You know, I think that for me personally, especially at, at Datadog, which is, you know, sells to a very technical audience and, and is a very technical product, I, I had a fair amount of, of technical training. I took a lot of development classes, database management classes. I, I ended up not going professionally to being a full-time developer, but I had the training. And, you know, I, I think in, in Datadog's formative time, my dragons have been the fact that I, I understood the persona we were selling to super well and everything that went out the door was uniquely tailored to what a technical person would react well to. And that, I think, has been, you know, a secret weapon, as it were, that a lot of other companies haven't had on the marketing side. And, you know, I think that's one reason we put campaigns out and people react to them super well. And, you know, the stats at the, end, at the, at, at the other end just kind of pop off the charts. I, I love that. I, I took the dragon thing also from a positioning perspective where Danny's the only person with dragons in the show. And she reminds people of that constantly, right? Mother of dragons, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of look at this as like a, a marketing thing. I, I talk about all the time, like this idea of like fight where you can win. The world hadn't seen a dragon in centuries until my children were born. The Dothraki hadn't crossed the sea any sea. They did for me. I was born to rule the Seven Kingdoms. And I will. And like, if you have something that only you have, like, what can only you do that nobody else can do? Like, you got to use that. And if you have, like, some cool data set from your customers, or if you have certain types of customer stories... Or if you have like a user conference that like has a very strong brand that you can use, whatever is your thing that people love, that people remember, that that is like really powerful, you got to use that and you got to position around it beyond just like your normal sort of like product positioning. But even within that, like Danny's pitch is, is twofold. Like A, I'm the rightful ruler, to which everyone kind of says like, eh, maybe that... Maybe that works. Oh, but I have dragons. Yeah. And it's I like, mean, I think okay. it's even more so. People don't believe her. They're like, you're not who you say you are. 
right. a lot of time. And so once you get the like, well, okay, I mean, technically, you know, she is the rightful ruler. And then, but, you know, you can kind of poke holes in that. Well, you say, it's like saying you're the number one solution, right? Well, it's like anyone can say that they're the number one solution. It's like, yeah, well, you're the rightful ruler because you're a Targaryen, but before there were Targaryens, like, other people were in charge. So, like, technically, we could just not be part of the kingdom anymore, and we'll just, you know, we'll just have the king of the north, and we'll just do it that way. So there's sort of ways to poke holes in that, but there's no way to poke holes in the fact that I have dragons, and, like, A, I can keep you the most safe, and B, I can make it hurt really bad if you if you don't agree. And so... I think that you see her make a mistake in the series where she chains her dragons up, and that's a pretty big mistake. And then obviously you see her, you know, go a little mad queen towards the end of the series where she uses her dragons a little bit too much, and it ends in 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 a bad situation. This city is yours. All these people are your subjects now. Sometimes it is better to answer injustice with mercy. I will answer injustice with justice. Queen of the Ashes, but you know she did win Darren Throne. So I don't know. I, I, I think if you if you got the dragons, I think you got to use them, and you got to make sure that in your marketing that it's front and center, and that you remind people over and over and over and over again that you have something that that your competitors don't. You know, actually going back to the fact that she won the Iron Throne, well, only for a time, and going back to the brand promise. I mean, when she went mad, you know, Mad Queen. And again, we don't know what the book would have really done because it hasn't been released yet. And, you know, hopefully the showrunners stay true to whatever was planned. But she was supposed to be this, like, democratizing is way, way too strong of a word, but this equality and rationalization agent. Like, this world that had been ruled by the strongest was going to have some rules. And, you know, you, there was going to be a system. And, you know, there wasn't going to be slavery. And people were going to be able to, like, try to make a better world for themselves. And there was this very idealistic philosophy behind following her also. And she got a fair amount of, of well-intentioned, influential people in her entourage throughout the show. Because, like, out of all the options that they have to try to ally with or to try to assist, the only person here that's actually trying to set up, like, a rules-based system is, is her. So, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and try to help her out. And the second that she abandons that, that's when, like, the disillusionment from all these people that had joined her camp, like, ends up becoming her downfall. I offer you a choice. Bend the knee and join me. Together, we will leave the world a better place than we found it. Or refuse. And die. I mean, there's a big corollary with that. You know, there... Ha how many documentaries have been made of companies that similarly, you know, had a brand promise and, you know, the documentary happens when they abandon it or they fail on it so horribly that there's a lot of fodder to make a documentary. But in terms of, you know, people that, that don't fall that, that far, but they still don't live up to the expectations, you know, you get a lot of employees leaving from companies that, you know, like aren't, don't end up doing good on their principles. I mean, lots of stories, you know, for instance, with Google's like, you know, don't do evil or don't, you know, whatever the name of their policy was like, don't, don't, don't do evil. And then people started not wanting to work on projects because they perceived them as like potentially evil. You know, that's, that's similar, I think, you know, to, to that scenario. And, you know, if, if the product really starts to suffer or you're not making good on your brand promise, like 
customers are going to start looking around to find something that actually does fulfill on that brand promise. And, you know, there, there's tons of tales just in our industry alone of a lot of products that were, were doing really well for a long time. And either the management changed or the management changed their ideas and the products are not doing that. And people left. Alex, any other thoughts on, on marketing lessons from Game of Thrones? I feel like we covered a lot of ground. I mean, I do think that one thing, you know, taking a lens, you know, kind of past the fourth wall and looking at the show in its entirety. I mean, talk about execution. Like, everything's just so on point. The cinematography, the casting choices, the wardrobe. I mean, you know, people look really dirty. Like, people that are supposed to be dirty look really dirty. I don't think you see in a lot of shows. If you were to give me the option between a whole swath of stuff that's kind of like half, you know, haphazardly put together or like two or three super tightly like bound, really well executed programs, I'm going to choose the latter. I'd rather do a, a far, far smaller scope of programming and, and have everything in its place and just every little detail has been thought out than go, you know, really broad spectrum and try to do a lot of things and just, you know, it's the equivalent of throwing a lot of spaghetti on the wall and hoping something will stick. I think that the reason why people and fans got so mad about season eight and the ending had nothing to do with the ending of how, how the series actually ended. I think, it, I think it's fine, but I think that they were so mad because the promise that had built, been built up over seven seasons over this like sprawling epic where everything made sense that all of a sudden they broke their promise. And in season eight, people were moving across land masses super quickly. They were making really hasty decisions. They were doing things that just didn't fit what we had spent, like, what, however many years of our lives? Seven, eight, nine years of our lives watching. And I think that they broke their own brand promise and they kind of rushed out season eight. If you could describe the season finale of Game of Thrones in one word, how would you describe that? Disappointing. <laughs> Disappointing. <laughs> and that is the sour taste that's in everyone's mouth. Not necessarily the ending, although you can quibble with certain things for sure. But I think that that is like the ultimate betrayal. And so my piece of, you know, you know, marketing lesson for that is. Number one, don't rush the ending. Number two, if you have to rush the ending, at least you still made seven seasons of great stuff. You know, it doesn't take away all of that. You know, you can still be proud of your work, but it will sully the rest of it. And to finish something strong is, is hard, but it's worth the extra effort. Yes, unlike the unsullied. Yeah, which like, uh, how many yeah. of them are left? Like, I feel like they get killed off they every single place they go. Yeah. But, you know, you know, it, it's interesting on, on the Unsullied, actually, even though they, they die off a lot, they have a much better life while they're dying off than they had, you know, being right. all the slavers. To win his shield, an Unsullied must go to the slave marts with a silver mark, find a newborn, and kill it before its mother's eyes. This way, my master says, we make certain there is no weakness left in them. 
You take a babe from its mother's arms, kill it as she watches and pay for her pain with a silver coin. You know, I think actually zooming into to the fact that things were just not executed well, there's a lot of characters that change quite a bit throughout the series. And I think one of the things that was really rushed is you don't you don't see the transformation of Daenerys into the, you know, Mad Queen. It's kind of like, well, she's got craziness in her bloodline because, you know, like her father, her uncle, or whoever it was that was the Mad King, he went crazy dad, too. Yeah. So she's new crazy. It's like, come on. Like she's morphed a lot. And then she just goes like nuts. It is it is just everyone else that had has a major transformation. You see the you see the formative events that led them to change their ways. And, you know, actually one person I think to definitely bring up the opposite of Bronn is, is, is and, and I think it's an important lesson, is Littlefinger. Littlefinger is this very, very clever, conniving guy who is also jockeying for power. And he's already managed to put himself in a lot of places of a lot of influence. And he's done it by very qu- quietly and underhandedly pitting people against each other. So he always ends up, you know, kind of like one one up. And he, you know, he, that he's kind of like the, the, you know, the, the vaporware guy, actually. He's selling lots of stuff <laughs> and he's making lots of pl- plots and he's waiting for the chips to fall from this other plot that he put into motion so that he's able to deliver on the thing that he's working on right now. He does that one too many times. And, you know, just like customers come become aware at some point, like you can't fool him that many times. The people that he's plotting against figure it out and turn the tables. I loved you. More than anyone. And yet he betrayed me. When you brought me back to Winterfell, you told me there's no justice in the world, not unless we make it. Thank you for all your many lessons, Lord Baelish. I will never forget them. And, you know, also the people he was plotting against and trying to work with two sisters against each other. It's like, at some point, they got to figure it out. Like, they grew up together. You're just trying to be this interloper. Like, you know, he just thought he was so so clever and so smart and he could keep on pushing it. And then he gets burned and loses. He gets his head chopped off. I think my final thought is also just cast Peter Dinklage because he's an incredible actor. But I do think that... I do think that there is something in Tyrion's story that is that is so, so brilliant for someone being, you know, the cast off, the castaway, the, that person that consistently is the underdog that is clever and funny. That's what I do. I drink and I know things. That's also just a little marketing takeaway that like people like stories about underdogs and they like stories about funny people and clever people. And so if you make them all of those things, like you're going to have a killer protagonist. And I think he's a lot of people's favorite character. Yeah, I, I think that another big part of that also is Tyrion's got some serious talents, but based on his family tree and what they value, he's this reject. He's His, his father's just appalled and embarrassed by him. And, you know, as soon as he's put into a position where his actual talents, which are quite formidable, are are like valued, he takes off. Death is so fine, whereas life, ah, life is full of possibilities. And, you know, I think that there's a lot there also, both, you know, for someone figuring out what company they want to be a part of and, and, and taking whatever you're special and going to a place where that's going to be valued, and also for a product in the market 
I mean, you might have a product that a certain customer profile is like, cool, whatever, but a completely different customer profile, it might be like a killer thing for them that, that, you know, they really, really value. And, you know, also putting yourself in the right place where whatever you're doing is going to really be important. I mean, I think is, is a lesson, you know, not just for marketing, but for probably life in general. Alex, zooming back out to Datadog, how do you think about content as a CMO? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's a lot of different kinds of content that serve different purposes and sometimes have different audiences. Going back to Game of Thrones and, and you know, comments on the production quality, something that we've been really painstaking about is whatever we put out there, we've, we've got to be proud of. You know, we, we've been able to grow a sizable content team or number of content teams, actually, and a very strong branding team and a very strong video team. And, you know, anything that we put out there is is there's a lot of polish to it. And there's a lot of polish inside the product also. And we'd rather do fewer things, but make them be really high quality and impactful and pick our shots than kind of machine gun out different kinds of content. So there can be a lot of frustration that the content might move slowly because we're, we're aiming for such a high bar, similar to, you know, George Martin's book writing process. And there's still a couple of books that we're all waiting for and we hope we'll finish them someday. But I mean, you can look at some of our blogs from like eight, nine years ago, and they were so well done. I mean, they're evergreen. There's a fair amount of comments that people say that we're almost another source of documentation on, you know, tech, tech components out in the market because we sat down, we researched it, we wrote it really, really detail-oriented. And, you know, we'll go back for something that's been out of date and we'll update it also. You know, when we put something out content-wise, it's going to stand the test of time. And if it's not because the topic is kind of ephemeral or if we just don't have the capacity to do a good job on it, we just don't do it. How do you view the ROI of content? Ooh, that's a tough question. Once again, there's different content types for different purposes. Ad content, you know, copy, things that are going to just keep on changing because the product is changing or the market is changing around it. You know, there's a definite ROI. This is content that we're putting out there to attract people that are looking for something. And it's got to be good. And we keep on revising it until it has good conversion rates. We have a whole slew of thought leadership or just informational materials that, like, we're putting it out there. And the ROI is going to be the longevity and the quality of the piece itself. And, and again, a company did an amazing job product-wise because the state of the art when we started was, was horrible. So we knew we could do better and we were going to do better. And that's reflected in the content as well. And yeah, I mean, you can go back to content from years and years and years ago. And it's still just as valuable now as it was then. And, and we'll brush it up if something's changed. But we don't change the quality or the intent. We just update the things that have changed around the content. So, I mean, yeah, the ROI there is just like we've got this hard-hitting stuff that is meant to be authoritative in, in the domain that it was written. And then how do you view brand building? And how do you view sort of like this like brand function, this content function, this comms function? And like, are, are these all sort of like a lot of people you sort of have these integrated functions now where it's like all three of those together? Do you separate it? How do you view brand as it fits within content? Yeah, you know, I think that the best brand building we've ever had has been our own customers. Very early on, we made the decision when we were a much smaller company and had far fewer resources to put our resources into winning customers. So 
you know, we got a very strong muscle for lead generation and for, you know, training sellers to to be able to identify use cases that we could solve and, and, to, and to get, you know, customers on board. We didn't focus on comms functions really until we had quite a critical mass to try to onboard customers. And we already had quite a reputation because people would organically write blogs or show videos of them using our products or writing about how they solve problems with their products. I mean, that kind of organic uh, growth. And, you know, I'm sure there's some statistic we could calculate that for every thousand customers or every thousand users, maybe only one or two of them would write a blog at some point. And, you know, we multiplied that. And all of a sudden, because we were winning so many customers, we were getting a lot of organic content. Um, I mean, I would say that we we really let the product do the talking. And you're very deterministic about what the product had to be. We didn't have to be, we didn't spend a lot of time on coming up with boilerplate templates and, you know, messaging documents. The product did a certain thing. There was a product philosophy behind it. I, I talked a little bit about that, uh, you know, at the beginning. And, you know, what what people were reacting to when they used the product underlied what we were saying the product was going to do for you. And even now, I mean, our, our uh, exec team, I mean, we want to shine the light on the product. We don't want to shine the light on ourselves or on the company, outside of the fact that the company is in a really good place with a lot of staffing and a lot of you know, accountability to keep the product as good as it has been for the long haul. But, you know, we we never invested big in comms. We we always went back, well, let me tell you what the product does. Well, let me tell you why we did the product that way. It was always, it's been the stock answer. You know, the product speaks for itself. And if we're ever going to do comms, it is to further the product and the philosophy behind the product. And we have 25,000 plus data points of customers that are very happily and very successfully solving their problems with the product. Any other thoughts on content and how, you know, marketing leaders think about content or, or advice that you'd have to someone who's who's a head of content at a SaaS company? Yeah, you know, maybe going back to Game of Thrones, I might have had a bit of a transformation from my marketing experiences before being a data dog. We were very heavily invested in SEO. We were doing a fair amount of, of you know, blog writing and other kinds of content. I mean, I must have written 20 or 30 white papers in that company stint alone in a couple of years. They weren't bad, but they weren't great. I would say that, that like a lot of the content that we were producing went there. It, it was a value. I wouldn't call it my best work. I was doing a lot of volume. And, and that was, you know, the marketing philosophy. And that wasn't bad. But I do remember, you know, when I came in, something that, that I did actually is I had a whole list of keywords that I wanted to get something up so that we would get a lot of organic traffic. I mean, we didn't have a huge amount of funding in, in, in the first like year I was here. And, you know, obviously, like, write up a couple blogs, get some traffic. It's going to be, you know, essentially the, the efforts there. But then thereafter, it's, you know, business that keeps on coming in recurring fashion for free. And, you know, we decided as a company that, that we weren't going to do that. And what I just described before of, you know, doing fewer things, but doing them amazing was something that really got solidified in the first year. And I would say that in one year's time, kind of spraying and praying and getting a lot of uh, a lot of content out there so you rank really highly, you'll win. But then after a while, like, you know, you, you do start to get a cachet when you have all these repeated hits, as it were, with content where people trust your content. And they refer other people organically and say, oh, you have a question about that system, read this three-part guide that Datadog put out. And in the long haul, focusing on quality, I think has gotten us way further than the short-term, you know, kind of sugar highs that you got from just writing out some all right content just to rank. And, you know, but then it doesn't really stand the test of time. I love it. Alex, 
awesome chatting with you. Thanks so much for for joining us on Remarkable. Any final thoughts here? I feel like uh, I, I need to find some time to rewatch all eight seasons now because you know, I know it's been it's been a couple of years now since since the last one came out. I know, indeed, and there's truly infinite things, entire seasons of podcasts dedicated to this show. So we could barely scratch the surface today, but I feel like we did uh, we did Tyrion proud. And a podcast always, always pays its debts. Alex, thanks again. Take care. Thank you all so much. Next time I see you, you'll be all in black. It was always my color. A farewell snow. And you, Stark. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios. B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.